Hello and welcome to Playback Daily with me, Louise Herity. It's Thursday the 5th of October and here's some of what's coming up. Well, look, put it this way. When you dance to Pastor Dobley in front of millions of people, right, it's literally, there's nothing that really holds any great kind of, you know... Fear, sort of, yes, yes. Any fear anymore, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> bring down the cost of diesel, bring down the cost of electricity and bring down the cost of groceries. <laughs> Just about everything. I did, I did like her and I saw, you know, sides of her um, that were very funny. She's clearly a very talented actress, but she was just difficult to live with. So she's not a bad person, but she was difficult to live with. The increase in problem gambling figures in Ireland featured across a few of today's radio shows. And first up, the topic was discussed on Morning Ireland. Here's Mary Wilson. 130,000 adults in Ireland are problem gamblers. A further 279,000 adults show moderate evidence of problem gambling. The new figures, more than 10 times previous estimates of problem gambling in this country, come in a new study carried out by the Economic and Social Research Institute. Problem gambling describes gambling behaviour that's disruptive or damaging to individuals and includes behaviours like betting more than one can afford to lose and experiences like guilt and anxiety around gambling. The average spend in this category, over €1,000 a month. New gambling legislation is expected to continue its progress through the Dáil this autumn. Pete Lunn is Research Professor with the Economic and Social Research Institute, which conducted the research. And good morning, Pete Lunn. Good morning. Uh, your research puts problem gambling way ahead of what was previously thought, 10 times previous estimates. So what was the methodology that you used? Yeah, so this is very important. Previously, when we measured problem gambling in this country, we measured it using in-person interviews, where an interviewer would visit somebody's home and ask them a battery of questions. Um, Usually that data was collected alongside data on drugs and alcohol. And we had conjectured in a report we published back in June that this was probably depressing the measures of problem gambling because people would feel uncomfortable admitting to their behaviour in those circumstances. Problem gambling is frequently a hidden problem. People often feel some guilt and shame about it and they might not be willing to divulge the information. So what we did was we designed a large online data collection. So this is almost 3,000 people within the sample. It's a nationally representative sample. And we collected the data online where we promised people absolute anonymity. They didn't have to talk to anyone. There didn't need to be anyone else in the room and so on. The moment we did that, we find that the numbers were much higher. So we find it's 3.3% of the population are classified as problem gamblers. That equates to one in 30 adults within the population. So that's a very large jump. Now, obviously, we'd want to carry out some checks on that data, which we did, and we find some very interesting things. We find if we ask people mm-hmm. how many close personal friends they have and do any of those have a problem with their gambling, we get almost exactly the same number. So when the public are talking about what they see around them among their friends and actually their family, we find a very similar number, somewhere around one in 30 uh, people perceive as having a problem with their gambling. And another thing we did to check our numbers was we asked people in detail what they spent on all the different gambling products every week. And we added that up. Uh, so we, looked, we added that up to an aggregate for if this sample is representative, what would that mean for spending on gambling across the country as a whole? Mm-hmm. We get 5.5 billion, which is just less actually than the estimated revenues of the industry. So we may still actually be under recording gambling behaviour in this study. Is there a typical problem gambler? 
Uh, no, that's interesting, actually. So we expected to find that we would get a lot of young men, that there would be more men than women, and that there would be people in lower socioeconomic groups, more disadvantaged groups. Now, to some extent, that's true. You can find statistically significant differences in that direction, but the differences are really quite small. Mm. So we've got around one in 40 women in this sample who are saying they're problem gamblers. <clears throat> according to the battery of questions that we ask them. Slightly different <clears throat> forms of gambling typically among women. It tends to be more slot machines and bingo, whereas with the guys it tends to be more sport. Uh, but we find also that around a quarter of people classified as problem gamblers have a primary degree. So although problem gambling is more common in lower socioeconomic groups, it's actually surprisingly common also among higher socioeconomic and groups. And age groups? Yeah, age is an interesting one. So problem gambling is not confined to young people. We find ages 20 to 50 um, is where it's concentrated. Above the age of 50, it tends to fall off. But we don't know whether that's a generational effect, whether it's what we call in social science a cohort effect. In other words, the younger generation is just gambling more and will continue to do so as they age, or whether it really is the case that when people get to around 50, they tend to change their behaviour. But interestingly as well, the group in our survey who gambled the most, who had mm. most problem gambling, are in their 30s. Okay, and uh, you mentioned some of the types of gambling, but were you able to sort of categorise a, a, a top five? Yeah, so, I mean, the most common form of gambling in the country is lotteries and scratch cards, but actually problem gamblers um, account for less of the spending on lotteries and scratch cards than they do for other forms of gambling, although lotteries and scratch cards are more associated with problem gambling than we previously thought. Uh, it's not all online either, so um, actually more than a third of the spending of problem gamblers is in person. It's spread across multiple types of gambling, so you would find you know, betting on sports, mm -hmm. you'd find bingo. There is a particular draw, I would say, for kind of slot machines and casinos for problem gamblers, but that's a fairly small effect. The thing we are primarily saying is that it is widespread and it is widespread across all forms of gambling that we measured. Did you look at whether... Well, let me put it this way. Is there, is there a difference between problem gambling and gambling addiction? Yes. So problem gambling is defined according to your answer to a set of questions about mm. whether gambling is causing um, financial difficulties for your household, whether it's causing you health difficulties, whether you're sometimes borrowing to fund gambling and so on. When you're talking about gambling addiction, we tend to study that more people who are referred to treatment centres and to support services. So, I mean, there is some debate within the mm. academic literature about the degree to which problem gambling does represent addiction and the degree to which, you know, it's, it's another yeah. kind, of if it's kind of problem. And also if it's hidden... It's hard to, to... They're not looking for help. Yes, it's hard, not... it is hard to study. One interesting thing in this regard, though, that we found in the study was that when we asked people, you know, do you wish that you gamble less than you currently do? About two-thirds of the people who we'd classified as problem gamblers said, yes, I wish I gambled less than I do. And what that suggests to me as a behavioural scientist is that we've got issues of self-control problems, that when people take a pace back, they would love to be spending less on their gambling. Mm. But on a day-to-day -day basis, they get tempted, they find that really hard, so over a period of time, they're distressed by how much they are spending and it's causing them problems. Pete, is there something in the Irish character that makes us more vulnerable to gambling or, you know, are we out of step with other countries that you looked at? Uh, we certainly have no evidence for that. Interestingly, what we've found about higher measures when you do the studies online seems to apply internationally. So in the UK and the US, when they've collected data online, they've also found much higher rates of problem gambling. I would see no evidence in our numbers to suggest that we are particularly out of step with the rest of the world. Interestingly, there's evidence that problem gambling is increasing internationally. So it's hard to make the international comparisons anyway, because in 
recent years and particularly over the pandemic years, it looks like there may have been an increase. OK, a final brief question because uh, gambling legislation is working its way through the Dáil at the moment. We'll talk to the Minister later on. Uh, you, this, this survey that you carried out, this study was uh, commissioned by the Gambling Regulatory Authority of Ireland to underpin uh, what they are doing. Do you have a view on that gambling legislation? Well, my job here is to put the evidence in front of people so they can make their minds up knowing what the balance is between the economic goods that are provided by the gambling industry in terms of employment and entertainment and the potential harms that it causes. There's two things I'd say. One is, I think there's been a view for a long time that this is an industry that's providing entertainment and that there is this tiny minority for whom it causes damage who need to be directed towards support and treatment services. I think given the scale of what we see in this study, that view is no longer tenable. What we're showing is that the degree of harm is much greater than that and that needs some kind of response. The other thing I'd say is that within our study, when we asked the public what do you think is the cause of problem gambling? Why do you think people around you are gambling more and are getting into difficulties? What they said was there are too many opportunities to gamble and there's too much advertising. So the public view it as that. Now, much of what's proposed in the bill is designed to restrict degrees of advertising and marketing. So to the extent that the public are right in identifying the cause, and we don't know that, but to the extent that they are right, it would seem that the provisions in the bill are directed at the right target. Pete Lunn of the ESRI talking to Mary Wilson on Morning Ireland. And later on the show, Moira Hannan spoke to Claire Dunnigan from Carlo, the founder of Thrive Recovery, and she's in recovery herself from a gambling addiction. Well, it started when I was in college. So, like, I would, instead of going to my lectures, I would end up going to a bookies and I would think I'm only going in there for a few minutes and it could be hours before I'd come out of there um, and that would have been the start of it and then you know I was then coupling that with being you know playing poker tournaments at night um, and then I would um, then I moved on to the you know online gambling because after a while you don't even want people to notice that you have this problem that is coming up. So you're doing it in secret. The second you would get paid, it would all be gone basically on gambling, thinking and, and genuinely convincing yourself that you were you were just going to double that money um, to, to catch up on what you'd already lost. It's the only addiction that you genuinely believe the only way out of it is to keep doing it. I did try for years to get help and I tried all different methods um, and, and none of it really worked for me until I just found someone who could understand me and connect with me because they had been through it themselves. And that was kind of the moment that saved me, I suppose. There's a massively high suicide rate with this and it's like, I know why. And to be honest, the figures in this new report do not surprise me at all. There's new gambling legislation on the way. What would you like to see the government do? Well, the big thing is obviously going to be whether they introduce a multi-operator self-exclusion scheme um, because they have that in the UK. We don't have it here. And that would be if you can, you know, just sign up to one thing and it it would block you from everything. You know, <laughs> people will have that moment of clarity at times and they'll they'll block themselves from a site but then they can just join another one two minutes later if they decide to. And that's Claire Donegan talking there to our reporter Maura Hannan. James Brown is Minister of State for Law Reform and a Fianna Fáil TD for Wexford. Minister James Brown, good morning. 
Good morning. You have called your gambling bill, which is on the priority list for this term, uh, you've called it a, a, a public health measure. How will it help people like Claire who suffer from gambling addiction and problem gambling? Well, people like Claire who are suffering from this type of addiction, it's a very insidious addiction. It's a very hidden addiction and an awful lot of stigma around it, even more so than many other addictions. So people are often afraid to come forward until it's very late or often Mm. too late. So this new gambling legislation and it's past committee stage at this stage and we're heading towards report and final stage within the Dáil. We'll address it in a number of different ways, but that exclusion register is part of this legislation. It's an essential Uh, part of it Um, and what exclusion registers often do is allow people to be able to hold off on that impulse to give them that little bit of pause and little bit of space to get the help they need or to let that impulse pass when that addiction is arising because one of the things around gambling uh, uh, that people maybe don't have the addiction or a problem don't really maybe understand is that it's not about winning money it's about that kind of sense of uh, of winning is far Mm. more important that release of dopamine so that's that's an essential element of it. Also, there'll be a levy on all of the gambling industries to fund education, awareness and treatment around issues around gambling addiction. So it's very much coming from, even though it's in the Department of Justice, a health-led approach to tackle this very serious issue. Our laws are completely out of date. They're from the 1930s and the 1950s. They're not fit for purpose or don't even exist in some areas. And I remember about 12, 15 years ago, there was like a lot of concern about a casino maybe setting up in Tipperary. Reality is now every 12-year-old is going around with a casino in their back pocket. So this is urgent legislation and we're treating it as urgent Will legislation. Will casinos be licensed under new legislation? All gambling activities uh, will be licensed under the legislation, so that absolutely includes uh, casinos. Include casinos. Just, strictly the thing speaking, is, there's just no... Minister, on, the, on the, the study we've had from the ESRI, it was a study commissioned um, by the, the Department of Justice and this new authority, which is in, court, in the course of preparation. But your legislation was ahead of the information that you've now received. So do you need to go back to, uh, to, to redraft some of that legislation to take into account just how serious this problem actually is? Well, I think we've been banging the drum about how serious this is. Um, I think the ESRI report reflects what the legislation is based around. I very much based on anecdotal evidence meeting with health professionals, in particular the likes of Professor Colin O'Gara, going to health facilities. And just through my own work as a TD and formerly as a barrister, I've seen the extent of gambling addiction. So I think what these hard figures show is what we really believed was the extent of this very serious addiction. But we'll certainly re-evaluate the legislation to see, do we need to go further anywhere? But this is some of the strictest gambling legislation in Europe that we're bringing forward as it is. You pledged to have this authority up and running this year. There is a designated CEO in place. Um, But will it be active this year? Well, it's it's been stood up by the CEO designate, Anne-Marie Caulfield. And one of the reasons for appointing a a CEO designate, if you like, before the legislation passed is that the the authority will be up and running when the legislation passes and they can hit that ground running rather than another couple of years gap, if you like. It is dependent on the legislation passed. Uh, that's the reality of it for the uh, authority to be able to... Sorry, Do you have all party buy-in? Yes, sir. 
No, I certainly believe we've all party buy-in. I guess um, a lot of support when it passed the second stage, there was um, no dissent in relation to the legislation. Uh, a few calls for it to go a little bit further here and there, but there was certainly no, um, if you like, dissent in relation well, to the well, legislation. Well, so I, I'm confident I have all party buy-in. Yeah, let's talk about whether it will go further. Uh, we've seen an increase in betting duty from 1% to 2% and there has been uh, a talk, I think, of a further 0.5% that came uh, from a study group within the, the Department of Finance. Would you support a further increase of 0.5%? But I think that is part of the budgetary negotiations. The the betting levy doesn't come under the Department of Justice, but I, within this legislation, there is a clear additional levy that would be put onto all gambling activities to get further funding from the gambling industry. It's a massive industry to make an awful lot of money. I certainly wouldn't object to seeing further uh, money being collected so from them. you would them. support it. What about this levy you talked about? Can you talk us through that? How much is that levy? How much do you expect it to bring in? And how will that money then be used if, if this is a public health measure? So the levy will apply to the gambling industry based on turnover. So it will be adjusted, obviously, based on the size of the particular um, company that might be providing the services. And it will be levied by the Gambling Regulatory Authority of Ireland and Amory Caulfield, who's the CEO designate. The actual percentage hasn't been worked out yet. We're still establishing the exact size of the industry, but it's a massive industry. So it is. The key will be that sufficient funding is collected to fund treatment, uh, education, and awareness that the dangers that is around gambling. Many people gamble safely, but the the everybody who gambles is at risk, and that's a, a message we really want to get out there. This is an industry that can cause a huge amount mm. of personal damage to families that can absolutely be destroyed, and, and that needs to be recognised. And it also needs to be recognised, doesn't it, that this is an industry that provides huge employment. And there has been pushback. Take the, the Bookmakers Association, for example, um, who said that the doubling of that uh, wager le- the wager tax uh, had led to the closing of 100 betting shops, I think, and 600 job losses. So how do you how do you strike a balance here? Well, that's what we're attempting to do is to strike that balance. The industry is not regulated. As I say, the legislation goes back to the 1930s and the 1950s. I think many in the industry welcome the regulation of the industry so that we can ensure that bad actors are not in the industry and that there is... um, actions that are safe for, for people right across the country. And we, this legislation, while it's publicly public health led, it is also about regulating the industry and it's also about consumer protection measures as well. So we think we are striking that balance. But when you look at the size of the industry, when you look at the public health impact, the industry has to understand that it has to c- contribute towards fixing the damage that is done by the industry as well. And as I say, many people gamble safely, but there is a huge public health impact as a result of the industry we as well. have a quick and final word on advertising here because um, there is a watershed uh, for after nine o'clock. But the industry again will say that, you know, you can place advertising bans in the legislation, but channels that cover day to day Irish racing, those channels will now be available to everybody except people in Ireland. It's kind of a, is it an an unintended anomaly here? Well, I don't accept that. That's certainly a message that's, uh, I suppose, attempted to be put out there by some people in the industry. But The legislation is crafted in such a way that anything you can see on a horse race today on live television, you will be able to see after this legislation passes. It is only the hard advertising in between races that is showing that is being banned. That is a unanimous recommendation of the Justice Committee accepted by the um, Cabinet. 
and pass the second stage by the Dáil. And the contract that's been referred to that uh, puts at risk, if you like, the showing of this horse racing was entered into last May by Horse Racing Ireland long after stated government policy and long after the Dáil had set out its intentions in relation to support this advertising ban. So kind of surprised that that contract was entered into in the face of government policy, but certainly there is no reason and no inhibition from showing horse racing as it is shown today. It is only hard advertising and that has to be addressed and that's reflected in the ESRI report. Advertising is having a huge impact in increasing gambling. James Brown, Minister of State for Law Reform and Fianna Fáil TD for Wexford on Morning Ireland. Musician, comedian and actor Bill Bailey is about to embark on a big tour and he was on The Ray Darcy Show. Uh, good afternoon. So, so you're heading to Australia first, is that, is that it? Yeah, that's the plan. Uh, yeah, I'm going down to, to the uh, Antipodes, um, also some dates in, uh, in the Far East, a few places. Uh, places I've been before, places like Kuala Lumpur and Shanghai and uh, Jakarta and those kind of places. So, yeah, yeah, far-flung places, yeah. Is it mainly expats who come to see you or everybody? Well, do you know what? Um, it, it's funny because I, I expected that to be the case. But the last time I was there, it was mainly uh, locals. And I think that there's been a huge kind of um, an appetite for comedy from from Britain and the UK and Ireland over the years uh, because it started out with YouTube. I think that a lot of comics, that's where uh-huh. people first see them now. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is, you know, that was like, I mean, I don't know when YouTube started, like mid-2000s or something. And then now what you get is a lot of people who watch those comics now all want to go and see it live. Wow. So I think there's um, it, there's a huge appetite for it. And it, it's like a live experience. And, you know, that's something you can't really replicate. So, um, yeah. That, it's, that's it's, interesting, it's that. Yeah, Because I was looking at some, they say, clips from Would I Lie to You, you know, f- you know, four or five, ten million views on YouTube. So that's where people are yeah. getting their, their, their comedy initially and then they want to see it live, as you say. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thought of Fire. That's it. Is that a makey up yeah. word, the name of the show? Yeah, it is. <laughs> right. um, it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a kind of a, a hybrid word, if you will. Uh, thought and amplifier uh-huh. conflated together. Right. Okay. So uh, that's the thing, you know. So that's kind of what my shows are like stories and recollections and jokes and all kinds of spoken word and lots of music. So I kind of thought, yeah, I just try. To, I'm always trying to think of a word that describes me. That's just not, you know, the usual words. And uh, that one, I don't know, it popped into my head. I thought, yeah, this will do. Thought of fire. I kind of like the sound of it. Okay. Like uh, the way it rolls off the tongue. So, so when you get on stage, will you be thoughtifying? Is that it? I will be. You'll exactly be th- that. Right, That's me. Right, right. I am the thoughtifier. Right. <laughs> oh, I loved Bill Bailey last night. He thoughtified very well. That, and that would yeah, be the did. past tense. It yes. did, exactly. <laughs> yeah. It sounds like something like some old-timey vaudeville show. Yes. I went to see the Thotifier. He came to town. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yes. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> here he comes. Uh, look at this man. Is it real? Can he be doing what he is? Yes. He can, he can titivate your minds with his extraordinary thoughts and amazing instruments. Ooh, you know, it's got that feel. Yeah. They'll be talking in pubs and clubs and cafes about the thought of fire coming to town but like yeah. so AI you do you, you cover artificial intelligence and we've been speaking an awful lot about it on, on, on the programme and it, it, it yeah. is fascinating and scary 
Um, yeah. And like even this week, you see there's a, a story there about a, a Swiss man who was paralysed uh, and they've put yep. a piece of technology on his brain uh, and if he thinks about moving his hand, his hand moves. Yes. Like it's yeah. it's spectacular. Exactly. Yeah. It is. And that's the thing, you see, that we are just sort of, I don't think we even have any idea how this is going to change uh, our lives in so many ways. And it's not all negative. I think that's, I mean, you, you Yeah, that's a positive that one. That's a positive one. I mean, yeah. there's a lot of positives, yeah, you know, yeah. and I think medically is where we'll see a huge amount of the applications that will be positive. Yes. And in terms of like finding, I mean, I read another story about, you know, the fact that, uh, the data that required to to create new antibiotics, um, you know, it takes human researchers years, you know, and you just, you get to feed it into AI and it just spits it out in a couple of hours. Yeah, there you go. You know, it's like, <laughs> next, you know. So, so there's yeah. kind of, there, there are positives to it, but those things, obviously, as you mentioned, they're, they're, they're amazing and they will improve our lives, no doubt. And I think what, where I'm, looking at it is the sort of there's this sort of existential panic around the arts about mm. you know yeah. the idea that somehow films will be AI renditions of actors and the, the script will be written by ChatGPT. there will be no need for actors writers the whole thing will be done you know on a computer in the afternoon but while it's solving you know while it's curing disease so mm. that's where I'm sort of interested in I think that what I wanted to explore was the fact that Human, one of the great things that we have, that we're almost like our, our secret weapon is our consciousness, is thought, is the random sort of oddness, the eccentricity, the flawed nature of humanity. That's what sort of connects with people in terms of live. You know, that's really what yeah. that's what makes it. That's what makes music work. That's what makes arts work. You know, the poetry, theatre, whatever you want. And so it's sort of really exploring that. And um, and I did actually do an experiment. I mean, there's been there actually has been some comedy experiments with. with, with yeah. Oh, yes, yeah. With with sort of you know mixed results. I mean, like, uh, but the the other night I tried it out. I tried a live chat GBT wrote in my show, and and it's amazing if you like. It's already getting to be quite sophisticated. Yeah. Like I was in Tewkesbury, which is this sort of you know very nice kind of market town in England. And um, and then you you know you say tell me about Tewkesbury and it says Tewkesbury is a blah 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 and it just burbles on spits out all the information from whatever you know Wikipedia. Mm. But then you can say tell me about Tewkesbury in a sarcastic way, right? <laughs> and then it just goes oh Tewkesbury so great it's really great I mean who wouldn't love it you know and immediately you think well this is actually I kind of. This is great. I didn't expect that. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's it's we can use it to our advantage. I think that's the thing. It's a tool that we can, if we get on top of it, we know how to manipulate it. Because you know, then it's yeah. going to be a positive. Right? Yeah, I, I, I don't share your optimism, but but like even this week, uh, Tom Hanks has come out and said that dental ad with me on it—that's not me. You know. <laughs> anyway, yeah. but I, I say I say to everybody I meet, keep it live and messy. Because AI can't do live and messy, although it, it can't. <laughs> no. That's exactly it. Yeah, it can't. It can't replicate the, the, the nonsense <laughs> yeah, that we come yeah, up with. Exactly. That's, it'll do its best to damn this, but it, it won't succeed. It won't succeed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I saw you on with Kathy Burke. Um, she did a, a lovely documentary on on growing old. Oh, yeah. uh, and you were a friend of hers and she obviously called in a favour or whatever because you, you're not getting old at all you're still in your 50s you know so that's that's, yeah. that's quite young uh, but, yeah. but, but it, it forced you obviously to think about uh, the ageing process um, yeah. and was that a, a tough thing to face up to or is it something that's on your mind all the time 
I mean, not not necessarily. I mean, I I mean, I think I'm aware of it. Obviously, you know, yes. like just the the general humiliations, <laughs> the little the little humiliations. You know, like oh, I get a, a weird pain in my knee, and I've got this weird lump on my foot. It's like, what's that? Why? What what's going on? Is it just wear and tear? Is it just like you know? Is this what happens? But I tend to I tend not to think about it. I mean, I tend to think about you know the the, the sort of positives of, again of anything, which is hopefully there are some positives in this that you have maybe a bit of insight, a, mm. a glimmer of, of of knowledge, of self knowledge, maybe I don't know. And and I think also um, the resilience. I think you get you can your sort of stamina, your resilience goes up a bit. I think you know the mental strength improves. I think over over the years, it's almost like. You think, well, okay, physically I might not be up to it, but mentally I might be. So I think that's that's something to be to, to certainly I I take a positive on it. You know, yeah. it's basically like the body is willing, but the mind is strong. Yeah, <laughs> that's, uh, that's yeah, you, bec- you become more comfortable in your own skin, which is which is yeah. hugely important. Are, are, are you watching um, Strictly? I was going to say Dancing with the Stars. That's what we call it here, Dancing with the Stars. Oh, Dancing with the Stars, of yeah. course. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it makes more sense. It makes far more sense as a title. It doesn't make any sense, Strictly. It's like a weird kind of cut and paste title, isn't it? Strictly ballroom and and uh, come dancing. You know, yeah. Strictly come doesn't make any sense. As yeah. I said repeatedly on that show, but of course it all got edited out. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I had, and I thought, yeah, it's quite a strong showing this year. Um, you know, with Angela Rippon, goodness sake. I mean, you know. Yes, the, the, wow, the vertical splits. God, I know. There yeah. you go. This, this, that's an inspiration to us all. Yes. And that's what I'll be working on for this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, and, yeah. and do you sit on? Do you sit sort of like on your in your ivory tower type sofa and go, "Oh yeah, I, I could do that. I could do that." Uh, yeah, they don't know. They're making yeah. a mistake there. They're peaking too soon. Yeah. They're peaking too soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm all over that. Yeah, yeah. I'm just looking at them going, "No, the hand position's all wrong. Yeah, yeah, Look yeah. at that." Look at that arm. The shoulders are too high. Straighten your oh, back. Straighten your back. Yeah. <laughs> That's points off for that. Thomas, you can't help it. Because, like, you know, when you're going through something like that, you've been judged. And, like, you know, every sort of the minutiae of every movement is sort of looked at. Then, yeah, you can't. I mean, you can't help but do it. No, no, um, no. Yeah. Well, no, I suppose no. you're more entitled to have an opinion than most of us. And we all do have one. Uh, li- yes. Listen, you, 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 you mentioned your show is obviously loads of music and that you're a multi-instrumentalist. Yeah. Um, yes. You don't mind me asking some advice. I'm I'm a man in my late fifties. I'm, I'm I've decided I'm going to learn the drums, right? Oh. Yeah. And I was looking for a song, you know, that I could aim towards. So a big birthday next year. There might be a party, and I could I could. This is ridiculous. It was a ridiculous idea, but there you go. It's something well, to aim towards. Uh, good on you. No, yeah. I say aim at something. That's a good thing. To say. yeah, very much so. I mean. The only thing is, if you've got somewhere, you know, you can practice. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, thing. and I have the, 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 you know, the silent ones, you know, the... the oh, you've got the silent drums. Yes, oh, there, yeah, oh, well, there you go. With the headphones, that's yeah, that's fine. With yeah. the headphones. Yeah, oh, no, yeah, no, yeah. You're so, so you're not going to just do the... No, no I'm not okay. going to ruin my marriage. You're not going to ruin my marriage. Uh, <laughs> that, that's, uh, that, that's, <laughs> I thought you were going to set it up in your front room <laughs> yeah. and, like, you know... It, well, it, do you want your tea? What? <laughs> blah, 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 blah. I mean, that's not a bad one, actually. Phil Collins. Oh, yeah, you know, all the, in, in the air tonight. tonight, yeah. Yes. yes. Now, there you go, you see. If you can get the drum, Phil, that's impressive. Yes, yes. Right. Uh, and what about Nirvana? I was thinking Smells Like Teen Spirit. Is, is that, would that be very difficult to do? That's quite a good one, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. that is, if you listen to Dave Grohl talking about it, though, yeah. you know, a lot of those a lot of those early Nirvana drum fills were all robbed off the old 70s funk and disco fills. Ah, right. So I would say 
practice your disco. Practice, practice your fourth disco. and floor. Practice, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, there you go. There you go. My 11 my, my year old son uh, has discovered the Who uh, and he's playing oh, right. My Generation on loop and he, he's going, will you be able to play drums like him, Daddy? And I go, no, that's Keith Moon. That's Keith Moon. You, I won't be doing <laughs> that's that. Keith Moon. Yeah. No, no, no he's a, that's, a, that's a legend. But yeah. Yeah. No, again, not a bad one to, to practice your sort of, you know, your stop and start. Yeah. Uh, uh, is, is that uh, is that difficult to stop and start? Is it a bit like... Yeah. Well, you've got to be able to kind of you don't don't let the drums control you. You've got to be in charge of them drums. Right. And okay. if you start if you start lashing away at those cymbals, they're all going to just be slashing away. You've got to be able to hit the cymbals and grab it and silent and all right. mute yeah, it yes. with your hands. Yeah. Yeah. Or you you know you'll be it'll be all over you. Yeah. You know you want you you'll need arms like Shiva. All That's right. what I'm saying. Okay. And did you did you did you teach yourself or did you go to uh, somebody to learn how to? I play taught myself. You oh, know, you? I had the silent drums as well. Yeah. yeah. So I, I and I uh, I played along to lots of songs that I liked, in lots of Chili Peppers, yeah. um, Nirvana, um, some metal, but lots of disco, lots of dance tracks. Always good for keeping time. You yes, know? yes. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. But yeah, no. Good uh, advice. Well, good good advice. Good luck. Thank, thanks. You can send the invoice to RTE. <laughs> yeah. <of course>. <laughs> <laughs> Television, you've done so many different television things um, and, mm. and it, it, it appears to come so easy to you. Yeah, um, I think the thing is that um, there's a lot of things that I'm interested in and, and, and a lot of those interests is reflected in the, the live shows. You know, I mean, I'm, And so the kind of shows that I tend to, to, to get involved in are things that I've, are interested in me, you know, my interests yes. anyway. So, you know, so I sort of, I kind of feel quite natural doing them. You know, if it's like, if it's something to do with art or portraiture, painting, I love doing that. I love sketching. If it's to do with nature, you know, if it's to do with the outdoors, you know, all of those things, these are the things that occupy me when I'm not um, working, not doing comedy, yeah. you know, and I'm not on stage. So that's an easy sort of choice for me. Um, well, look, put it this way, when you dance the Pasta Doble in front of millions of people, right, there's literally, there's nothing that really holds any great kind of, you know, fear. Sort of, yes, yes. any fear anymore, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're, 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 sort you're, of, you put yourself it out burns there. Away all the fear. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. It's like when they come in and they say, "Oh, well, it's the semi-final. We've got about 14 million people." All oh, right, okay, all right. And you'll be watching what the tango to Metallica's Enter Sandman. Yeah, okay, fine. That's fine. Absolutely normal. So. Something like that happens. You can tend to, you tend to just you know anything's breeze. Were, were you ever floating above yourself, looking at yourself on the dance floor? Was it was it an out of body ever? Every time. Every time. Oh, right. okay. every time yeah. I had an out of body experience. Yeah. I was like, what the hell is happening now? In fact, on the on that Metallica one, I actually got so excited I danced off the dance floor. I actually danced into a camera, and. Uh, <laughs> and it was it was one of my worst fears that I would actually that was what would happen I would I would actually lose I'd forget where I was and dance <laughs> off out of the studio <laughs> you know, like through a door you know like just down the road yeah, yeah. yeah where's he gone yeah so um, yeah that was uh, that'll, that'll do it for you comedian Bill Bailey on the Ray Darcy show. Final preparations are underway ahead of next week's budget, but what are people hoping for from Finance Minister Michael McGrath next Tuesday? Reporter Sally Ann Barrett was getting the views of people from Ballinasloe in County Galway, and she had this report on Morning Ireland. Well, I'd like more done for students. I mean, the grants, they're not for the working parents. The fees are just colossal. And I'd like more done for the working family. We're both working, getting up at half five in the morning. 
and we're the ones that's suffering. I have a very high mortgage and it's just, uh, it's absolutely crippling. So if they could do something to give us some sort of relief, it would be a great help. Just trying to keep your head above water, very hard. Bring down the cost of diesel, bring down the cost of electricity and bring down the cost of groceries. <laughs> just about everything. The wish list of morning shoppers in Balnasloe ahead of next week's budget. Returning home after dropping her four-year-old son to preschool, local resident Claudia Mulryan hopes there'll be measures for families like hers. I'm working part-time. Um, my hus- uh, husband works full-time. We could do with more childcare hours because the ECCE scheme is three hours a day and that's not enough for somebody who wants to work even part-time. So we're getting two extra hours that we pay for. We have to fall back on the grandparents and Luckily, they have the time. Tiger should be completely free. Claudia's son will be one of many children progressing to a primary school in Banlasloe next year. But already capacity issues have emerged. It's an issue local Fine Gael Senator Ashleen Dolan wants this budget to address. Our schools, our primary schools here are at capacity. We have our town school here, Skull and Crenefa. 27 years waiting for a new school build. I mean, that's absolutely shocking. That school now has planning approval. We will have a new school in Banislaw, my own primary school. But again, that's going to take three years to build. So we have challenges right now. What I want to see from the departments like Department of Education, um, getting support, of course, in terms of finance, but is that they will be focusing on a capital infrastructure build. So in other words, that we're going to be seeing funding there for additional classrooms, for new school bills, because our population is growing. Despite that population growth, for some businesses in Banlasloe, it's proving to be a challenging time. Smoky coal was banned. Then when you had the closure of Bournemouth, which has directly affected me by 50%. I'd have customers one time coming in for five bales of briquettes and a barrel of gas. They're not even coming for the barrel of gas now. Solid fuel merchant Peter Madden is hoping for measures to combat the sale of black market coal and prepare for an uncertain future. We pay carbon tax. We pay carbon tax at source. And there's none of that tax coming back into our industry. We'd be looking for help and funding in that line, you know, to have a soft landing. I mean, we know our, our day is near done in the lines of, you know, the country going green. And while the country is ramping up to retrofitting and bringing those homes into line, there will be a demand for our services. But if the legitimate guy is going to be undermined and run out of business, it's going to be very hard to achieve any targets. COVID um, followed quickly by a cost of living crisis and now the increased VAT rate on food. So it is, it's very difficult uh, to do business at the moment. Marion Canavan, along with her husband John, operates Kariba's restaurant. Well, energy costs, I'm tied into a contract now until May um, and uh, our rate is more than doubled on what we were paying. Um, employers, PRSI, you know, the way if we had a reduction in that would allow us to pay more. If there's no housing, we can't get industry into the town. Housing is a huge issue. It's a huge issue for our staff and we see many customers now who are all being put out of their houses and there are no houses available to rent. Sinn Féin councillor for Balnasloe is Dermot Connolly. There is some delivery coming forward as regards um, new housing properties, but if you take it over the last 25 or 30 years, there has been very little uh, delivery of, of council housing stock and you've been dependent on the open market and people are you know, in, in rented accommodation situations. 
over a barrel and particularly for young couples who don't qualify to go onto the local authority housing list they're finding it uh, increasingly difficult um, and, and particularly in, in rural Ireland it's compounded by the fact that you know transport is, is an issue and the cost of it. As the weekly sheep sales at Banislow Mart come to a close, farmers there too hope there'll be something for them on October 10th. This budget, they're trying to get more on the, the, the 12 euro on the subsidy. We could do it 25 or 30 euros, but it's not happening like, because they're forgetting about us in rural Ireland, really. Like. I'd like to see 50 euro at least in the pension. I would. I mean, I know I'm only living alone, but we don't pay electricity, gas, you'll go to town, you'll buy bit of meat, shopping, it's brutal, it's brutal. The price of diesel have to come down. Stamp duty is too high as well at 7.5% to try to buy a bit of land. That should be brought down as well. This is a shocking year now. This is the worst year we came across in a long time. Fertiliser, deer, price of corn down and the turf not really saved, still in the bog. So it is going to be a long year. Farmers at Ballinasloe Mart, County Galway, giving their pre-budget thoughts to Sally Ann Barrett on today's Morning Ireland. Broadcaster Lucy Kennedy has just released her fifth children's book, The Friendship Fairies Save Christmas. And she dropped into the nine o'clock show to chat to Kira King about the book and about her new series of her TV show, Living with Lucy. I'll tell you who we have so far. I still have one more person to live with. I can't tell you who that is. Okay. So I've done five of the six. It's out at the end of October. I have lived with Richie Sadler. Have you met him in real life? I've such met nice Richie. Guy. He's such a gent. Such I'm a mad nice about him. He's such a nice guy. Me too. And you know, he's a psychotherapist. So yes. Every time I interviewed him, oh. I, I was really conscious of my body language. Absolutely. I was like, I'm fine. Yeah, yeah. Fine. Everything's fine. There's nothing wrong here. Don't There's look nothing at my wrong. Eyes. So, Richie Sadler, Kenny Price. I'll give you all the Kenny Price stuff. Uh, oh, Andrew Maxwell, hysterical Irish comedian. Yeah. Now lives in Kent. Wait to see his house. It's really? like in front of the sea. Beautiful wife, beautiful children. Loved him. Great crack. Uh, Simon Gregson, he's Steve McDonald in Corrie. Now, I'd be, obviously I've been watching him for years on, you know, the television, like whatever. So what is he like? Kara, A, he is so handsome. Yes. And B, he is so nice. And would you believe of all the weekends, I got like a bladder infection, so I couldn't drink. No. So I was literally chugging on gallons and gallons of water. And it's the one weekend I would have loved to be, you know, go out on the tiles with them. So and they're calling me the Irish Dolphin. He lives over in Manchester. Yeah. And so did you travel to work with him? Did you travel to the set of Coronation Street? I met him Street? in Corrie. Perfect. I was trying to act all kind of casual. But you know, your knees go to jelly as I saw him walking towards me because... On the cobblestones? On the cobblestones, literally. And it, it's, it's, it's like... It's like a real street in real life. So when they moved it to Manchester, it's they rebuilt the set as real houses. So it's only when you walk in the door, you go, oh, this is a set. But it kind of confuses you. It's very real looking. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he is so good looking and he is Steve McDonald in real life. So there's even not though he's much Simon. You know, difference between Simon and Steve. There's nothing. Wow, he even okay. has at the end of his garden, which annoys his wife, Emma, who you would love... He, he even has like a car up on wheels. So he's, he's like a mechanic in real life. <laughs> so it's like, you aren't actually 
Simon, you are actually Steve. So could you... There's no difference. Like, could you... Were you on set? Were you like, could you be one of the extras when you were over there? Like, no. that's what I would do. What? No, no. See, well, they weren't filming A and B. It's, I think it's hard, to, you know. They kind of kept an eye on it, especially when they got wind of a naughty Irish girl on the set. You see, that's it. I mean, I'd say there was, you know, there was... Security. Yeah, there was security, I'd, I'd say, yeah. brought in without a shadow of a doubt. The Irish are here. Um, Geordie Shore's Charlotte Crosby. Have lived with her. Oh, that, okay. So, yeah, so, yeah. We, so we picked Katie instead. So tell me all about Katie. Katie Price is a very nice girl. Yeah, there's just been so many headlines in the I last know. couple of years that haven't been great. And like, as I said, growing up over the last 15 to 20 years, there wasn't a, a time when she wasn't in a headline or she, you know, she wasn't talking about something or, you know, whatever. So what what is it about Katie Price? Did, you know, were you comfortable? Is there more to her than we see Katie Price, it's a difficult one. And living with someone like her, I was the same with Kerry Katona. I was, I was the same with anybody who we've read a lot about and kind of grown up getting you, to know. You think you know them. You do. Yeah. But you, we don't. We don't really. And we have to remember that a lot of what is written, unfortunately for them, is just not true. And, and I've witnessed, I witnessed it with Gemma Collins. An article was written when I was there and she wasn't actually where they said she was. So I, I've actually seen it firsthand that some can be fabricated. Now, Katie is different in the sense that she's not a saint. Yeah. But what she is, is great fun and a loving mum. And for that, I can't fault her. Yeah. So the Mucky Mansion is like this big old Tudor style house up a long driveway. And it's not that mucky. Like she's been renovating it for the last couple of years. It's very warm which I love because I hate being cold. I spend my life with like a hot water bottle down my pyjama bottoms. And her house was lovely and warm and cosy and there was a real family sense. You know, the children's paintings were on the kitchen uh, wall. There, there was a homey vibe. Um, but Katie herself is, I mean, she, she said she is ADHD, so she's very full on. She's mm-hmm. very, she talks a lot. She changes the subject quite quickly. She's a challenging interview, but also she's she's kind of been there, done it so many times. I'd say at this stage, you see, she's that's what I'm bored. trying to say because you know I was looking at the David Beckham documentary yesterday, and I was mm. like, are we seeing the real David Beckham here? Are we seeing the real Victoria Beckham? So the likes, the, in terms of Katie Price, yeah, she's been through it so many times. So how do you get her to get her guard down? I'll tell you how, my friend. Seventy-two hours, so you can pretty much fake who you are in a fifteen-minute interview. You know, you yeah. can pretend you're absolutely fine. But when you live with somebody over 72 hours, don't forget the crew go home, the cameras leave and I'm still there. Mm-hmm. You get a really good sense of who the person is. So when the crew arrive the next day and the camera's on, I, I, I know them by then. So I know what they're like when the camera's not there. What Katie Price is, is completely authentic in herself. Like what you, what you get is what you, like she is, she is what you would expect her to be. There were, there were no surprises. I didn't think, God, she's very different in real life. She's exactly mm-hmm. how I was expecting her to be. But I, I didn't know that she was going to be such good crack. She yeah. completely got my silly sense of humour. Um, she's very affectionate with her children. Harvey was there. Yeah. Harvey's adorable, Kira. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. Um, but even watching Katie with Harvey, like he, he, is, he is hard work. Yeah, of course. For her. Mm-hmm. And, and she was doing that on her own for a long, for long time. For a very long time. Yeah. yeah. And she's a loving mum. And, and at the time, her dog has since passed away. And people were giving out about her online saying, you know, she shouldn't be allowed to have animals. Now, I can't comment on that. I certainly didn't see any animal abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, 
but her, her dog ran out. She kind of lives on a very, very busy motorway. Well, she's, she's massively into horses. Like, that's another thing that, you know what I mean, that people know about Katie Price all along is that her love for animals. You yeah, know? She does have a love for animals, mm. but she basically lives on what, what can be described, it'd be like the M50. It'd be like if there were gates at the side of the M50 and then a long driveway up to Mucky Mansion. So unfortunately, these dogs are running out and, and getting killed on this very, very busy road. But she had this uh, guard dog called... Uh, Blade, and I I love dogs. I have a rescue dog. Everyone knows Riley, who's like my daughter. But this dog really scared me. Okay. So he was trained to kill. He was like a, a protection guard dog wow. for her because she's had a few burglaries of the years. And he was a black German Shepherd and he would sleep at the bottom of her. So her and Carl, who's her boyfriend, they were in like the annex, like in the top of the attic of the house. And he'd sleep at the bottom. So I held a wee for the full night, Kira. Because you were afraid of the dog. Because the loo was behind him. Oh no. That's how scary he was. I literally lay in bed, dined to a wee for one night. Oh dear. Do you know what? Anybody who's had children will appreciate that. Okay, Joe Biden's commander doesn't sound as scary now anymore. Um, now, yeah. of all the celebs that you lived with um, yeah. for this season's show, who made the biggest impression on you? Well, it sounds kind of like it was it was Katie Price, but... I feel like it was Steve McDonald. Really? Yeah. Simon Gregson, Simon just, Gregson, just so genuine. So, like, I really want him to be my friend in real life. I said it to him. Like and I what said, did he say? Did he say yes? Like, or yeah, did he say, please he's get like, out yeah, of my house? Yeah, definitely. No, he wants to come over. He wants to <laughs> hang out. Um, I, I think him, I think um, meeting Richie Sadler, that was a real honour. He's a really, really good guy. He's a really smart guy and he's a really good guy. Yeah. And I'm a fan. So yeah, am I. So total yeah, so fan. I'm delighted that, like, maybe the rest of Ireland are going to see just yes. how lovely that he is. And, and how, did you meet and his little baby? Yes. Oh so my cute. God, Sam. I know, mm-hmm. Divine and obviously Fiona, his his wife, I love. Des Cahill? Yes, I know. That one's going to be fun. Oh, Des Cahill. Do you know what, what is the difference between, because obviously you've done this for so long and you've, yeah. you've seen so many UK celebrities, but I feel, and, I, and this is so very Irish, that when Irish celebrities find out that you're coming to visit, that mm. everyone's like, we need to clean up, we need to paint the house. Totally. We need to, do you find that? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, Christy Dignam was telling me, God rest his soul, Christy was telling me that Catherine, his wife, uh, wanted to put on an extension. Wanted to put an extension before you lived? Yes, before yes, from my lived. arrival. Okay, right. So, so, I, so she, she got away with, I think, like a fresh paint in the house. Mm-hmm. But it's hilarious. Even Richie Sadler said, this is, he said, I've been under so much pressure knowing that you're arriving. We've had to basically renovate a room for you to sleep in. Yeah. So I think it is the, I'm the same though. If, mm-hmm. if the doorbell goes and it's someone I know, I'm thinking... Is there washing on the radiator? I know. We just want to put our best foot forward the whole time we as do, Irish like, people. When you go in and you visit somebody's house and they're like, I'm so sorry it's such a mess. And I'm like, I know. There, there is no mess it's like here. one it's dog fine. hair on the ground. You know? <laughs> trying to get to a couple of text messages, Lucy. Lucy is a breath of fresh air on a horrible morning. Even at 65 years old, I love her fairies. Oh, yeah. thank so, you so, so much. So they're talking about them being 65 years old, not you. Yeah, well, I feel 65. <laughs> oh. uh, I watched the documentary, Katie Price, Harvey and Me. She was amazing. Her fight for her disabled son was so admirable as he turned 18 and became an adult. Yes. Um, and somebody says, good morning, Kira. Can I please say a huge thanks to Lucy? My daughter, Grace, has her four books. I'm <sighs> delighted to hear she has a new book out about Aww. Christmas. Well done, Lucy. The books are absolutely amazing. And that is from Shirley. Thank in you, Tala. everybody. And I, I always forget as well that I'm quite loud in the morning. I hope I'm not scaring your listeners with my, with my laugh. No, it's getting you're worse, not. Kira. You're not, your, laugh, your laugh is fabulous. It's getting worse. And here's this, I have to say this to you as well, because... Yes. And I think this is why you're re- so good at living with Lucy. But I need to know what the secret is. Because I remember when I met you 
and you were so kind and you were so nice to me my first oh. time on television oh. but then me and you used to hang out in the makeup room out in Virgin Media yeah. and I would have called myself a pretty private person you know what I mean I wouldn't really you know talk yeah. to myself that much within five minutes in your company I told you my deepest darkest secrets that I hadn't told another human soul so <laughs> yes. what and I, and I, I used to I'm a doctor I just don't know it but I'd walk away bamboozled being like why, why did I say that to Lucy I haven't said that to my nearest and dearest friend <laughs> so you have this gift though you really do you're, you're so warm and wh- what do you think it is where you get people <sighs> to open up it's my love of people. Like, I've no qualifications. I did my leaving cert, didn't do well. Repeated, did worse. So I've no qualifications in anything other than I love people. I've always loved people and I always will. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm interested in other people. And I, I, I don't know what it, I, I genuinely think I just love people. I love getting to know them. I, I love putting people at ease very quickly um, I was cabin crew, so maybe it's the whole, you know... Um, you have to deal with other human beings in yes, stressful situations. Yes, yeah, it could and be that. social mobility and customer care. I, I don't know, but I think ultimately my only skill is is people and, and relaxing and, well, people. Puppets. Puppets, I mean, you puppets would, and people. You, you put up with Podge and Raj. Yeah. I mean, your children, I'd say, are angels. There's nothing your children can ever do because I'd say you've heard it all. Yes, Makira, the day is going to come. When they find out about Podge and Roch. I know. What do I do then? I don't know. You have to leave the country. Yeah, you're going to have to. Be like mom. Yeah, it'd be one of those things that you have to hold out for as long as you can. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Because they're going to use that against you. <laughs> <laughs> they're absolutely going to use that against you. They and this will. is something that I've always wanted to ask you. Like, you've lived yeah. with 54 people. Yeah, I can't cope. Like, how old am I? 82? <laughs> you've lived with 54 people since Living with Lucy started. Yeah. Has there, and now you don't have to name names, obviously. I don't think you can name names anyway. But has there ever been, has there been situations where you've walked away and you're like, I'm really glad to get away after God, yeah, no, hours. totally. It's me. I'd always be honest. I, I haven't hidden the fact that Daniela Westbrook was a nightmare. Gotcha. Um, so we went to Marbella. Now, keep in mind, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, she, she, has, she has bipolar and schiz- uh, schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. So she, it, this is not her fault. And obviously she's had her... Um, difficulties with with drugs over the years. Yeah. So it's not her fault, mm-hmm. but she was very difficult to live with. Um, so I did kiss the Aer Lingus staff and ask for a quarter bottle of whatever they had as I boarded. And they said, we can't open the trolley until we're in the air. <laughs> That's how stressful I found the whole thing. Right, okay. So she's but the one that kind of sticks out. She's the one that sticks out. But in recent years, keep in mind that was seven years ago. In recent years, she's kind of got her act together. And and. And I did, I did like her, and I saw, you know, sides of her um, that were very funny. She's clearly a very talented actress, but she was just difficult to live with. So she's not a bad person, but she was difficult to live with. Broadcaster Lucy Kennedy on the Nine O'clock Show and her book, The Friendship Fairies Save Christmas, is available now. Someone else who was launching a book today was Met Air and forecaster Joanna Donnelly and she was on today with Claire Byrne. My background is maths and science so I was a science obsessed child and young adult so I came to meteorology is science and um, the foundation is in maths and physics so I came to it from there. My husband 
however he would be more interested in weather and he knows all the weather facts and weather science and he came to it although he is also a maths and physics guy he came to it that way so we both ended up in the same space but coming mm-hmm. from it. So the science of maths place. carried you into meteorology. That's right yeah. So then um, the book which emphasises the importance of the sea area forecast as opposed to the, the general forecast maybe that many people you know are glued to every single day. Will you explain to us why it is so important? Well, it's the fundamentals, really, the sea area forecast. That's how we started. Um, We started with the sea area forecast back in 1850s, the 1850s, the mid-19th century, when sea travel became a a year-round thing. We went from uh, sails, sailings, sailing ships, Sailing ships that were de- uh, whose travels was determined by the movement of the winds into steam engine, which travelled all year round, and that then obviously fell under the influence of the weather. They needed to f- travel through storms, um, so the sea area forecast evolved then in order to protect lives at sea. Mm-hmm. And general weather forecasting evolved from that. So in actual fact, the sea area forecast came first. And it hasn't really changed all that much since it was developed in the mid-19th century. The sea area forecast is kind of exactly the same. We talk about the wind, the weather and the visibility. And the idea is that anybody at sea that can hear the sea area forecast can avoid bad weather and make it safe to land. And just to lift the curtain a little bit, I was so interested to read how laborious it is to put that together. It takes hours. Well, every forecast takes hours, but it's a six hour, every six hours the forecast is updated. But the sea area forecast needs to be monitored at all times. Mm. To, and, and obviously all the forecasts need to be monitored at all times. But it, there are steps to take to produce a sea area forecast and they need to be done yeah, laboriously, methodically, I think, is probably a, a more appropriate word every mm. time. Yeah. Now, this uh, story in the book, which was fascinating, the Royal Charter Storm of 1859. Tell us that one, because this really shows us how important this sea area forecast yeah. was and is. And it's funny because on the walls of Met Erin, if you get an opportunity to visit, there is a, an article about the Royal Charter Storm. And it was always there in the back of my mind about the storm. I knew about it. I knew it was where we started from. But I, in researching the book and then researching the people that were on the boat. And I think the book for me was more about the people as well as, as the science Um So there had been a gold rush in Australia at the time and a lot of people were moving to Australia and then bringing back their gold. Um, So this ship was one of the new ships, a steamship that had suddenly we we could get back from Australia without waiting for the the right weather conditions. And it was a 20,000 kilometre journey. These people had left their homes in Europe to go to Australia to make their fortune, to bring it back to Europe. They got 20,000 kilometres along the journey and within sight of land, within 70 kilometres of their destination at Liverpool, the boat sank Mm -hmm. and they died. Hundreds of people died. The gold was lost and then recovered from the sea over the course of the next 50 years. You know, people were still going out and picking the gold off the thing. But this storm that it met caused absolute devastation right across the coasts of the UK and from there developed the sea area forecast. The gale warnings initially and then the sea area forecast. That was Met Aaron's Joanna Donnelly on Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care.